Welcome to uh, another episode of Conversing Labs. This is Reversing Labs podcast where we talk about all things threat hunting, malware intelligence, supply chain security, infosec. Uh, and we are really pleased to have our guest with us today, Steve Lasker. Steve, um, to start off our conversation as we do, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? And also, if you could, kind of give us a sense of your journey into the information security space. Yeah, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, Paul. Um, I've been really impressed with the work Conversing Lab has been doing and Reversing Labs uh, on the products and services you guys are offering. So it's uh, it's an interesting journey. So um, I've been, for the last you know 20 years or so, I was working at Microsoft. And one of the last sets of things that I had been working on was the container tooling for Docker container tooling for development through production. And then for the last six years or so, I had been working on the Azure Container Registry running that service. Working in the industry for a while, there we're just we're seeing a reboot of uh, the virtualization stack. So that's where the Docker Container ecosystem comes in. And it's not just a production things, right? It's it's development through production. And it's it was interesting to observe the the trends that were happening there is the the amazing productivity that it happens that has with this shift in the industry to expect more for less. Um, but there is also this other interesting phenomenon happening at the same time where the way we're achieving this great productivity is pulling things from the internet uh, and pulling them in, whether it be containers or when I'm building my containers, pulling in the latest version of some package. Uh, and that was a pretty major shift from the days where we were pulling in software from vendors that we trusted, whether it be control vendors or libraries and so forth. So they were doing great due diligence on their software because their company was at risk. So watching all of this, um, realizing that we really needed to uh, apply the standards that exist, right? This is companies have expectations for how their software should be verified and tested and um, meet certain compliance. And none of that was really being done. Um, so this was, so around 2018, we started the effort around uh, the Notary V2 work where we said, look, the best practice is to bring the content you depend on to your environment. There was no good signing technology that worked for that content at the time. It depended on the content being in the same place. So if I copy it to my registry, I no longer had that, that seal of integrity on it. So that's where we started that project is making sure that I can put identities around uh, who built this these particular packages, working with a great group of people across all clouds and vendors. And we had a great uh, collaboration group there. So that's kind of how I got pulled into the space was seeing the, the need and the opportunity, um, uh, not just for the Azure customers at the time, but Microsoft's a software company, not just a cloud provider. So how does Microsoft ship its software to run on its competitors' clouds and so forth? So uh, it was a great opportunity to kind of engage in the open source community and, and figure out how do we bring the bar, the expected bar back to this new generation of the way software is built, consumed, and deployed, d distributed. So, I mean, you had a 20-year stint at, at Microsoft and, and um, uh, ended up there as a, um, pro a principal program manager for Azure. Um, and a, a really interesting time period to be at Microsoft from kind of the early 2000s, yeah. right? Um, 
and tr kind of trustworthy computing memo era, right? And this kind of big organization-wide shift and focus on application security. And then, as you said, you know, uh, 20 years, it really saw the evolution from you know, desktop to cloud. Um, just if you could kind of talk about that, that experience and your, your journey, uh, you know, your, your, your uh, time spent at Microsoft and kind of some of the changes that, that you saw there and how, how you see those playing out now in the, in the conversations we're having now about, about technology use and adoption and security, obviously. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So if you wind back quite a bit, um, even to the days where Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer were running the company, the industry was in a different sp space, right? You had the Microsofts, the Oracles, the SAPs competing for holistic platforms. All your apps and services should be built on Windows. All your apps and services should be built with Oracle apps and, you know, and so forth. And every win was a loss to the other. So it was a really different marketplace. Um, shift to today, there's a much more interoperability, right? I use a little bit of Azure, use a little bit of AWS. I might be using both, um, you know, software, not just software vendors, but open source projects as well as a way to consume in additional capabilities. So that paradigm shift is a very interesting one. And also with the ability for the internet to pull in anything at any time, um, really change the industry on what's available to them and also the expectations around how fast people need to get updates out. Uh, you know, the days that we would build something and take two or three months to test and verify and roll out something before it's actually consumed is, you know, that's just laughed upon now. Um, so that really shifted the landscape in the sense of where humans were doing testing and there was built-in stability um, to some extent because software is coming from vendors that their businesses were at stake. Uh, shifts now where you can pull in anything from any place at any time. And we don't have time for humans to do the testing and verification. So I think that brought about a, a pretty significant change um, that is just you know happening, just happened to be while I was at Microsoft. The other place was was interesting because Microsoft's a big company and it was I was able to move around with different divisions and different portions of the company. And when Azure was first getting started, I had the opportunity, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> When, I, when Azure was getting started, I had the opportunity to work on their billing system. Uh, so uh, it was one of the largest billing systems in the world. Uh, telcos were the second, but they were separated by country. And one of the areas that I was working on was our payment gateway. And just considering the risk and fraud aspects of what it takes for Xbox consumers, because there's a huge risk and fraud situation there where gamers are very motivated um, compared to corporate entities and what they are trying to do or, or who they are representing, because in this case, they're actually com companies as opposed to individual gamers. So it's another interesting area to kind of see the levels of risk and fraud uh, that were happening at, you know, at a payment gateway and how you, you know, check and verify these things um, is very, in a lot of places, very similar to how we're trying to verify the sources of content, not just the source code that we are consuming, but who are the entities behind that source code? Um, and when I, I'm specifically using the word entities because people come and go, right? It's, do I really want to trust an individual or do I want to trust a collection of individuals that might shift over time? 
So it's just a, an interesting aspect of, as I, I think about how we want to verify this, the software we're consuming, packages, completed software, operating systems, is how do you assure that that wasn't tampered with? Is there some kind of integrity seal on it? And what is the supporting information around it that I can do some efficient checks to know that uh, they already did some due diligence? They already checked that it doesn't have any vulnerabilities in it. But when did they last check? Because all of this is right time-shifted information. Um, if they checked it last month, that's great, but we learn a lot in a month period. So how can I get updated information? Or when was that information stated that was done? Uh, and who was it stated by? Because if I find some random piece of software on a USB stick was you know the old thing or on the internet at some endpoint, I don't know who built that thing. If I find an SBOM for it, who actually assembled that SBOM? How do I know that that SBOM actually is from the vendor that built that vendor entity that built that piece of software or package? Um, if I have a statement that says it meets some compliance or it was scanned, how do I know that that entity is also you know true? Because otherwise, I'm just finding pieces of paper on the inner, you know, on the floor that I'm supposed to trust. Like I want to be able to read some information about it and know that it comes from an identity that I trust for my environment because they might be trustworthy, but they don't meet the government level or financial service sector requirements that I need for my environment. Yeah. Well, you mentioned government level too. And I mean, I think one of the things we've seen in the last 18 months, right, is that the federal government, you know, the Biden administration have you know, kind of taken the lead on some on trying to answer some of these questions, or at least for vendors who are selling into the federal government space, which of course is Microsoft and, and many other vendors, um, with the uh, you know executive order and some of the follow-on guidance that's come come out of you know Office of Management Budget and, and so on around that. Um, what are what's your sense on how, if that's going to move the needle at all? They they're talking, uh, like you said, about using software bills of material or or, or, or having them. Um, they're talking, uh, you know, about you know these issues around software provenance and, and so on. Um, is that going to make a difference again? Move the needle or not? Yeah, I, look, this is a, a very interesting space uh, because. Security and standards of this are not direct value to companies. Companies are selling their software. They don't think that this is the, when they're trying to sell their widget, what differentiates, differentiates their widget is not necessarily um, the assumption is they're doing best practices on insecurity. What are they? So I kind of review this as like taxes and insurance. Um, where companies need to do it. The more mature the company or the more mature the people at the company will remind them you need to do this kind of stuff because a very healthy company in an hour can be out of business and have huge liabilities because something made it through. And they could have made it through because a human made a mistake or a human was emotional or a nation state actor was involved. Right. Business email compromise, right? I mean, that's yeah. a, you know tried and true, but a very effective way of uh, you know getting getting your hands on corporate bank accounts. Yeah, yeah. So I think what's interesting around the government standards is, and it's not just the U.S. government, right? The U.K. has set up standards. France, um, you know, just every country is having its own set of standards because it, it's not just their government software, but I think it's the the balance of what I refer to as the carrot and stick. 
right? I, I have a stick to hold you, you know, um, requirements to you must do these things. And if then it's the question of like, all right, I must do these things. How easy is it to get it done? So that's the, the carrot. Uh, so the government, by setting a set of standards out there, says these are the levels of expectations. The, there's lots of software companies that want to have government contracts. So they're going to institute their software with these best practice, with, to meet these compliance standards. And then it's up to the ecosystem to build the best tooling, the best products, the best services that continue to meet and exceed those standards. Um, right, there's a min bar, just like when we drive cars in the US, you know, there's a minimum requirements for insurance you have to have. Um, there's gonna be a minimum set of requirements. And then any large vendor, any vendor of any size will be smart enough to know you don't go for the minimum. You go for the companies that are doing the better part because the liability is just far too there, uh, far far too risky. Um, I, I love the Tylenol incident back in 1982 as being a, a really interesting um, spot, you know, for at the time, which you, know, you think is just absurd. We had medications and other food on the shelf that were just, you could just open up the cap in this case, they dropped in some cyanide caplets, put the cap back on, and walked away. And several people died a pretty horrible death as a result of that. Uh, and in an instant, Johnson & Johnson's name was gone, evaporated, you know, in addition to the liabilities. Uh, so, but that was the standard at the time. That's right. And uh, as a result of that, uh, there were changes, right? Uh, Johnson that Johnson Johnson made, as well as pretty much every other drug maker, uh, to to how you know childproof caps and yep. and secure caps and, and and packaging to to prevent that type of tampering. Uh, you wrote a, a blog post on this, signed, sealed, and delivered, where you where you talk about that. You you look back at analogs in physical supply chains and and attacks on them, um, and look sort of lessons learned how. Um, more traditional uh, product vendors uh, responded to those, mm -hmm. you know, high level. What is the takeaway from that? What do software publishers and the software you know, industry have to learn from how other product manufacturers have responded to these types of threats? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I like making analogies to existing infrastructure that's already built. Um, it's tried and tested and, you know, there's always subtle nuances, but the way the, the physical supply chain works, whether it be food or the parts that go into cars that you know, get assembled, is very similar to what software is. The idea that I could instantly pull something across the internet you know, into my production environment, sure, it's possible, but how do I know that one, that the hundreds of thousands of connections between my production service and that endpoint are gonna be operating through no fault that stuff happens. How do I know that an update that was well-intended actually breaks my environment, right? The, the, the largest vulnerabilities of cases are actually updates to the packages. It's not the initial software. I mean, it's kind of known. You see evil.com, you don't install the software. But, you know, our favorite SolarWinds or any of these others, they're usually updates that come through. And those cases were signed by the you know, original company. So the, on all the best practices, we bring milk and food into our home. We put it in storage. It's there when we need it. We replenish when we need to. 
manufacturers go out and get parts. And when they bring them in, they're doing quality control. They make sure that the stuff they're bringing in meets their expectations. So the analogy here is, why aren't we doing the same thing for software? Let's bring, use, leverage the internet, bring in the copies of the latest thing, do some testing on it, make sure it meets the, first of all, does it come from the entity that we believe it comes from? That's the integrity seal. Is it still the same? Because it's not just one endpoint. We, we bounce them across dev, staging, prod, so forth. Is it still original? Is it still authentic? When was it last checked? What is the timestamps that are associated with it and when the S-bombs and the scan results were done? And then the every update is a change, right? It's an intentional change. Is that change a change that will cause a break in my environment? So you wanna do functional testing. Is there a change in there that a human made a mistake and some code could actually go awry and cause, an, uh, well, cause an outage or cause a vulnerability? Or did somebody accidentally pull in another package that, or not accidentally or intentionally, pulled in a package that is doing bad stuff? Right? Bad stuff could be the wide variety of things. So I think it's really a matter of the discipline that we're seeing is companies need to start putting those disciplines in place. And it doesn't mean that humans need to physically scan everything, right? We're, we're not saying that. What we're saying is just apply good automation practices for testing and verification as you do for your own build environments and deployments. So it's just a matter of writing more automation. Uh, I like to say nothing's free. So if you're getting some free software from the internet or wherever you're getting it from, invest in putting best practices in place, including you know scanning for bad patterns. And that's where Reversing Labs has got some amazing technology is to not necessarily know this particular package is known to be vulnerable because that's just a matter of doing due diligence. It's catching stuff before you know about it. So what can be done to look for patterns and things? Because to know I shouldn't deploy this thing because there is a, a smaller piece of a bad pattern that's embedded into the software that hasn't been caught yet. Right. And that is a sort of, you know, it's it's like the crawl, walk, run type situation there, there's a tremendous amount to be done at the at the crawl and walk stage just around making sure you haven't fallen for a typo squatting attack and actually accidentally pulled in a malicious package it was just named to look like the package you wanted but then there's the solar winds you know uh scenario right at the sort of run stage where yeah everything checks out except that your development environment got hacked by a nation state and there's right. a you know there's a malicious behavior in there that you're unaware of you know and but you need to be obviously before you you ship that out to your customers because it's signed it's coming from your update servers and for all intents and purposes for them that means it's good to go um and yes that's that is the um I, what's interesting to me about the analogy you make in your blog post um is you know between physical supply chains and and software supply chains it's similar to a point Jen Easterly uh, at CISA made recently in in a speech where she talked about um, the car the auto industry right and auto safety you know airbags and seat belts mm -hmm. and all the improvements in auto safety in the last century right that have turned automobiles from basically kind of you know <laughs> death, death chambers, traps. you know, <laughs> death traps, if you're unfortunate enough to get in an accident and them to incredibly safe um, um, uh, products. Um, you know, when you go back and look at that history, though, 
those changes were the result of regulations, right? Mm-hmm. For first federal regulations and mandate seatbelts, and then state level laws that mandated that people actually use the seatbelts, right? Yep. Um, and you and I are probably of that generation where the seatbelts were in the car, but nobody wore them, right? And that sort of, there was this period from the 60s to the 80s where that was kind of the thing. Like, it was yeah, a federal was, requirement, but it wasn't, but nobody, you know. But nobody they, had to use them. <laughs> and culturally, nobody had been, but then there were these ah. state laws and people, people started to wear them. But we, we don't have that yet in the software space. Um, and I'm wondering, we're, we're talking about a you know, day after the Biden administration put out their cybersecurity um, agenda um, uh, strategy uh, document, really in- interesting and important um, policy proposal. Um, what do you think is the right um, mix there of carrot and stick from the from yep. the law and regulatory standpoint to you know really get company because the automakers obviously did not want to put seatbelts in their cars they felt like that it. would yeah they they fought it for years um successfully um so what is the the right carrot and stick approach i guess to get the software industry moving in the same direction as the automobile industry where now in 2023 right safety and airbags are are selling features of, of vehicles right people yeah. are looking for that and I, what's interesting is you have the carrot and stick and, and the other part is culture, right? It became cool to, I don't know if it's cool to wear seatbelts per se, but actually some places it is, right? You see people driving around with five point harnesses in their car. They're, yeah. they're, they're regular day drivers. You know, obviously they're probably on the track. You don't feel something. safe if you're not wearing it. I mean, I know about you. I, I feel that way. Like if I don't have it on, I'm like, eh, I gotta get my seatbelt on. No, we, we talked about this at a different time. Uh, yeah. I had swapped out the stereo in my car back when you used to do that. And I had to pull the seats out to get the amp underneath and everything. And I'm in the car and I didn't want to put the seatbelt bolted back in. So I'm just trying to see if it was stable. And I was literally like just shaking in nervousness because I just didn't have the the safety pieces in place. So, but that is an instilled culture that it shifts it from fighting, you know, the evil regulatory standards to, no, this, this makes sense. Like I have friends that have died. I have, you know, situations, I have companies that I know that have gone out of business. I know of these vulnerabilities that have happened. So, but what you also saw is this very interesting ecosystem of government and private sector interopping back and forth where they're keep on raising the bar. And if you know, if you, to some extent, look at the space industry, right? The NASA had to initiate a lot of these efforts because it just wasn't cost effective at first. So they invested themselves. Right and now you have private sector doing much better innovations, um, you know, to bring the, you know, the, the industry forward. So I, I look, you got to do something, you got to start somewhere. So I think having those regulatory standards are there will be the bar that, um, again, this is taxes and insurance. Every company that's trying to do their business is knows they have to do this, but what's the checklist? What, you know, if I need to go hand it to somebody that's not core to my product innovation, but I need to put it to somebody that's responsible for making sure we're adhering to the standards, what is that list? Right? We saw this with COVID. Companies were like, look, just tell me what to do. And so the CDC would put out guidance and you know, forget all the details of you know how the, that played out in the sense of the politics of it. But the point was, is you're seeing <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just uh, trying not to talk step about that. <laughs> uh, but the, but there, but you still saw the need, right? You saw the company saying, please just mm-hmm. tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And for us traveling to conferences, we're going to cities and these cities and, and countries and conference centers and staff of them were like, they can't make up their own standard because they just get attacked. So they can just mm -hmm. point to whatever government standard for different countries we went to conferences. In. So look, we're just following the standards here. The local so standard. The yeah. locals, right. The, well, that's, yeah. that's actually a very good point. Um, yeah. So I think that this is critical to set the bar with the, the stick. Um, the carrots are developing. Um, and you bring up a really good point of how do we do this across localities? Localities mm -hmm. being cities, mm -hmm. states, countries. What is the, if you know, we're an international, we're a global economy. Yeah. At some point we'll be a cross planetary economy. We'll have to figure out timestamps across multiple planets, which will be an interesting problem. Um, but you want to talk about UAPs? Let's talk about UAPs. <laughs> that'll, so, be, that'll be great for the, for the numbers. Well, it, <laughs> the, for the downloads for conversing labs. Well, we, we, could, we even have to delve into that topic. I know. I mean, it's just you know, like uh, uh, so many different fun. Like, I, I'll, I'll have to come back and, and talk more about it. This one episode got 200,000 downloads. Like, what? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> where was it? So, we were talking right. about the, the security aspects of where yeah. soft. Uh, wow. Um, I was going to this other tangent of time zones and so forth. And, you yeah. know, it's one. Oh, I know. The, the standards across countries standards, and continents. Yeah. Across countries. So, right. It, look, the different countries are going to have slightly different variations on it. We need a way to have interoperability so that the different companies can evolve, the different security companies can evolve and have some interoperability. So this is where, you know, I've spent more of my recent time now focusing on some IETF uh, standards around secure, uh, secure supply chain integrity, transparency, and trust, the SCIT effort, so that we can create an ecosystem for security companies, reversing labs, you know, other security companies, companies building SBOMs, companies distributing supply chain information that there are some standards so that we can see an ecosystem of multiple projects, products, and services to have a level of interoperability. Because if we don't have standards, then everybody's just trying to build up from the same base. And we don't really bring the ecosystem up as a whole. So that's where I, you know, I'm pretty excited to see that evolve because it gives us a way for multiple countries to contribute to those common elements. And if the, the way we think about SCIT is a way to provide verifiable identity based information, the actual content SCIT itself doesn't care about. But it wants to make sure it's these secure pipes that things that are put in it can be trustworthy. And then it's up to the consumers to decide, you know, is that information relevant to their environment? But you have this common way of communicating, and that might be the way reversing labs is looking for vulnerabilities or the way they're producing information so right. that consumers can pull that in. So that's where I think is really powerful so that the various projects can continue to, to raise the bar but they're raising the bar and still able to communicate with each other so that there is this growing ecosystem, you know, any different than, you know, we plug into outlets in the walls and, you know, there's a standards that are there. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you mentioned that um, supply chain integrity, transparency and trust, the SCIT um, project, with IETF, 
you know, uh, standards always a somewhat lengthy process, but anything, um, anything to report on that or when, when we might see some output or some, some guidelines uh, from IETF, IETF on, uh, on the supply chain uh, integrity yeah. issue. So it's true. Standards do take time because you the, the intent is to get multiple parties to come to agreement. So that you know, and it's not just agreement because they conflict. It's they're bringing in different perspectives, um, and that's that's a very valuable place. Is how do you bring a group of people that are collaborating together in a positive direction that have different views and different experiences, so that you just have a better solution. Um, that's so IETF has been those standards bodies that you know the internet runs on. Uh, and there's been a, an amazing group of people that we've been working with from all different corners of the industry and including multiple continents. We were debating on how to spell artifacts with an E or an I because it depends on the side of the pond you're on. Um, that said, the Skit Working Group is I, they've said literally the fastest group that's been working through adoption uh, in its history. Um, and I think it's, we have, obviously there's a need that's part of it, but there's some amazing people that we're working with that, you know, have been in the ITF for years and know all the groups and what's again, kind of, again, a building on existing things as we're having conversations in skit, we're talking about other working groups and other standards that are in IETF ready that we don't need to reinvent everything from scratch. Why don't we leverage the other pieces that are there and, you know, including verifiable credentials, which is part of W3C or other projects of suits and rats and all kinds of other interesting project names that are, uh, uh, are there. But I, I feel it, I see it happening quickly. I'm seeing adopters. I'm seeing the specs evolve quickly with reference implementations. Um, I think we'll see some very quickly uh, without you know, disclosing too much there uh, that will really keep set the bar for how companies can run a solution in the environment for what they need. Um, because I think a, a big part of security is uh, how do I run it in a secure environment as well as a public environment? Because it, it's a mix of both. Mm -hmm. So, right. You know, final question, Steve. Um, you know, there's there's often discussion of I think Wendy Nather kind of coined the term of you know the the security poverty line, right? Um, and there's always a I think sometimes the discussions about um, these types of you know whether it's supply chain or or what have you um, tend to tilt towards you know more affluent resource, you know, resourced companies who can, you know, Microsoft is obviously they can, they can spend whatever needs to be spent on supply chain. And, but so many software publishers out there, so many small companies, um, small businesses that don't have those resources. And yet, you know, they produce most of the stuff that's out there. Most of the applications that get used, most of the software that gets yep. used as we're, as we're moving in, as we're, as we're starting to deal in a more, um, you know, honest way uh, with this supply chain issue and the, and the threats and risks. Do we need to be mindful of that? And and how do we make this um, uh, achievable? These types of objectives and goals achievable for companies of all different sizes. You know, not just the the big rich companies. No, absolutely. I, it's a great point, and I think this is speaks exactly to what we've been doing on doing with Skit. Um, there's the matter of every 
consumer. When I say consumer, I'm not talking about end consumer. Like you know, our, our friends and family have nothing to do with tech. They're just trying to get their apps on the phone. You know, it's it's Microsoft consuming software. It's it's IBM consuming software to build its software because everybody's packaging other stuff. <clears throat> Every time you're trying to consume something, what is the level of depth of analysis? that you're going to do. Um, are we going to do DNA analysis on every piece of software that we look at? It's not just the cost, it's time, it's practicality. Um, you know, there's, a, when you look at a, 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 a product and you look at the side, you see a brand, you decide whether you trust that brand. You look at the ingredients on it. If I'm allergic to peanuts, then I'm going to make sure it doesn't contain peanuts. Do I know it doesn't contain peanuts? I'm trusting, right? I'm looking at this enough information. If I'm gluten, you know, gluten, uh, I need gluten-free food, I'm going to look at uh, the logos and so forth that are there. So it's a matter of building a sense of trust and being able to verify it, having enough information to make statements about the quality of the software so that now I get to uh, smaller companies or, or smaller groups. You know, there's a, a group in ITF uh, uh, that they're focused on emergency management, whether it be schools or fire, or police and hospitals and so forth. They don't have enough people to do high-tech evaluation. But what if there is an entity that is dedicated to making sure that all of the emergency management software, which is unique, is being tested and is stamped with an approval because this entity is doing that work. And then every hospital, emergency management system, whatever, they're just making sure that this piece of software they're about to consume was tested within a certain time frame by an entity they're choosing to trust for their industry, and then they're good to go. Um, so that's how I see it scaling from you know the, the really big financial firms that won't trust anybody just so they want to make sure that the risk is so high that they're going to do their own testing uh, because they can afford to do it towards larger groups, which still want that, but they're delegating trust to another entity that is doing that on their behalf. So I, I, that's how I think this will scale. Yeah. But it's part of it is every one of those statements has to be trustworthy. So right. that's why we are focusing so hard on the, uh, verifiable identity work that we're doing in Skit to make sure that when I'm pulling something out, I can actually trust the information. Just like when I go to a notary, if we buy a house, if you and I are exchanging the sale of a house, we have to go to a notary and I have to prove my identity and you prove your identity. The notary right. doesn't care about the contract. They're assuming that's leaving to somebody else. They're making sure that we are both who we say we are. Right. And then somebody wants to analyze the contract is saying, well, I know these are the people that they say they are because they were verified. Now they can just do the analysis on the actual contract. Right. Steve Lasker, it's been great having you on and uh, we look forward to having you on again and uh, continuing to talk about supply chain security. Thanks so much for coming on uh, Conversing Labs. Thank you for having me, Paul. At Reversing Labs, I'm really impressed with the work you guys are doing and it's exciting space. Thanks for yeah, having me. It's great talking to you. We'll do it again.